Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different, Uncanny X's for Podcasts, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80 expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. I'm Dylan. I'm Kyle. And I'm Nico. And this is one of those amazing experiences where we had such an intense conversation talking about an issue that it had to transform from one episode to two episodes. We're, of course, talking about Christopher Claremont and Brent Anderson's amazing God Loves Man Kills, an incredibly powerful story that has had so many adaptations like we mentioned different scenes have been used in at least two or three of the x-men movies this story was originally published in late 1982 and saw several republishings as marvel graphic novels would be published and republished and republished so if you're thinking you've got a rare thing just make sure you check the publishing edition we've talked a number of things about this issue we've discussed what was there what wasn't there changes to the art and style and that leaves us to talking about the issue itself This story kicks off with a bang right away. It doesn't pull its punches, beginning with the murder of children. It's a shocking story, especially for the X-Men, a book that we perceive to be for younger readers, especially at this time. Whether it's the clever use of tone to express the heaviness of the atmosphere, or it's the passion and pain in Magneto's face, there is a lot to unpack in this first few pages. Jonah, as you were reading this for the first time, were you surprised at the level of violence? Violence showcased? Yes, I absolutely was. For the most part, from what I've read in the Uncanny X-Men run, it's been mostly, for lack of a better way of saying it, Saturday morning cartoon violence. It was what you expect in a comic book. Punchy, punchy, use your superpower, fight the bad guy, no one gets really hurt. Everyone kind of just goes unconscious, and then everyone just magically heals within three panels. But, you know, this was a complete shock and twist that two children, nonetheless, were murdered in cold blood. And it was something that I was not expecting or fully prepared for what this issue was going to do to me emotionally. But it was very fascinating to see it open up on the pages of violence. Like, they were straight into it. And it really is straight into it. It's three pages that that whole murder sequence takes place, and then the introduction of Reverend Stryker's two more pages. Kyle, this juxtaposition of mortality, and you don't have a right to live, and the idea of God and reverency, did the religious overtones juxtaposed with mortality create the atmosphere for you? I know you had mentioned that the color and the art was so powerful. Yes, I honestly have some uncomfortable feelings to the way that religion is shown here and how it reflects with the world today. You know, there's there's something powerful about the timelessness of it. This was written in the 1980s, the early 80s, 81, 82, somewhere around there. And yet you're saying that you're affected by its portrayal of religion compared with religion as it's used today. 
Yes. I got to speak with Chris Claremont at NYCC this past weekend with Jonah in tow. And part of our conversation was that a lot of the story elements he touched on were years, if not decades, ahead of time. And, you know, he thanked us very much for it. But it is very true that there is something in this that is so very current that it creates an uncomfortability. Right. And if I if I remember correctly, the 80s were really when the very popular evangelical movement that the, the Striker Crusade is based off of was starting to come into prominence. Absolutely. You couldn't say Tammy Faye Baker without a bunch of little angels slathering butter on their face like it was makeup. Oh my. <laughs> oh man, I think I just dated myself with a reference there. Oh, I know Woo-hoo! exactly you what, total- what you're referring <laughs> to. You totally did. Oh, the pain. The pain. <laughs> Well, speaking of the pain, Dylan, there's something that I thought is really interesting, and I found myself, like, head-scratching, but I I understand why it's there, and it makes sense. Stryker is able to get as much information in the X-Men as he is due to Xavier's uncomfortable ties to the government that go all the way back to the Stan Lee era. One of the things I love about this story is that it perverts the idea that the humans working with mutants were always secretly working against them. These files immediately fell into the wrong hands and ultimately are going to be used to hurt mutes. That corruption of the safety of government is a reflection of the changing times that the X-Men were being told during. Did you see the idea that the X-Men could no longer trust their government as a shift at this point? Or do you feel that that was something that they were just finally discussing? I feel like it was a shift when it comes to the X-Men, especially this team of Cyclops and Storm and Wolverine and Colossus and Nightcrawler and kind of Kitty. She's kind of a loose cannon. Xavier was trusting of the government and the X-Men are, at this point in time, aren't really questioning Xavier and his alliances too much. So, I mean, it was kind of a shift, but kind of not because the X-Men are just going to do whatever Xavier tells them to, sadly, at this point. Which is why this issue taking Xavier, Storm, and Cyclops off the board in a meaningful way early on is so shocking. That trio, that triumphant of power, represents the reasonability and focus of the X-Men in just three, just three bodies, for lack of a better way to put it. It is a very intense way to motivate the story, and it's actually so right on top of itself. We go straight from the Striker X-Men Files scene to Kitty getting real pushy about race with Stevie. I know we touched on this last episode, but I have to say, I don't care for it. One of the things I hear the most is, oh, you're Cuban? You don't look Latin. Oh, okay. That's a problem. I'm sorry I don't live up to your stereotypes. I'll work on it. I'll see if I can meet your prejudice halfway. And you just don't tell someone how to be a minority. And I think it's really disgusting that Kitty is not rebuked. Not only for her use of the N-word, but for her use of instructing a black woman on how to feel about the N-word. Does anybody have any opinions on that topic? Because I feel like this is something that all four of us have spoken angrily about on more than one occasion, only it's usually on Storm's behalf. I feel like it's a failing of all of the characters involved. Colossus was just giving excuses for Kitty, and... Stevie just kind of took it and internalized it. It just, it feels like it really kills the relationship between those three characters to me. It really should, shouldn't it? There's something artificial about it at that point. 
Dylan, how did you feel about the race argument? Well, I was going to give an opinion that might be a little bit different, and it might actually sound a little bit opposite. Things that I've said on other episodes. Kitty is not particularly one of my favorite characters, but just like Mikey said when we read and did an episode for Contest of Champions, at this point in time in comics, Kitty is still very young, and she's still very new to being a mutant and the prejudice of it. I've not trying to give her any type of credit for what she did. She shouldn't have said the words that she did to Stevie. But I think he, I think Claremont was trying to write a teenager who was freaking out about someone that it seemed like she had been around for a while being very prejudiced against her and her people. And I think she just was not thinking with what she was saying. But I really feel like, not that it's okay that she said what she said, but I feel like maybe Claremont should have written Stevie or Colossus or or Ileana better at correcting her or saying something to her instead of letting her just run off to the car and then Stevie agreeing with her. Again, I'm not agreeing with what Kitty said, but I think it was supposed to reflect that she was a teenager that was acting out without thinking. And I hear what you're saying, because you're not defending her actions, nor are you even defending the writing as an example of something to be revered. You're simply stating that the unreasonability is expected, not reasonable, from a child in a high-stakes situation. Jonah, like I said earlier, you and I are both Latino, and between the two of us, you have far less passing privilege than I do. How did you feel about the way race was handled in the pages of God Loves Man Kills? Okay, so Nico talking about my less white passing privilege. In my freshman year, I went to pick up some supplies to make food with some friends. One of my friends picked up white American cheese, looked at it, looked at me and said, Oh, this reminds me, you're not white. What are you? That is what I've been asked. I have been, and I have also, the most disgusting phrase I've ever heard that has been, I think has ever been told, I've been called, is exotic. So I just want to put that in perspective. Oh my god, I'm trying to unpack all of that. Listen, there's a lot to unpack there. We're just going to close the suitcase for now, and I have to unpack a lot of different things. I think... I can't I, even. That was, that was also two separate instances. I have to do see that. that the friend did not call me exotic. Okay. Um, what I want to say is, I think I understand what Kitty was trying to say, but I think there is a way to do it that still emulates what Dylan said of a teenager freaking out, but doing it in a way that's not using a slur and is not offending a character or somebody who might be reading it. I think overall, it could have been handled better. I know I would be asking a lot from any writer in the mid-80s to try to be more conscious of how they come across in a book for people who aren't white, but I think there is a very happy medium and compromise that someone could have come up with to convey that emotion without either being offensive or using a better example of race for your for this metaphor. I th- I think there's a way to do it. I don't personally know it at this moment, but I think it could have been done better. Also have to Always keep in mind when this was written. Not as an excuse, but a lot of things that were deemed acceptable back then that aren't now, then you have to not accept it, but be okay with that coming up. Absolutely.
On the topic that you mentioned where it's not too much to ask that he could do better, I actually feel that one of the strengths of this story is how deftly Claremont handles the emotional realities of losing X-Men. Something we talk about, especially during the 140s, the 150s, it kind of started to be, someone died this arc, oh, nope, they're fine. Someone died this arc, oh, nope, they're fine. Someone dead now, oh, nope, they're fine. Sometimes they would come back the same issue, and it seemed like there was always a Shi'ar regeneration bed But here, Xavier, Storm, and Cyclops' deaths are compounded by the heavy realism of those earlier scenes. I feel Kitty's response to losing Charlie, Scott, and Roe is powerful, real, and honest. And I also think, speaking of Xavier... His torture sequences are unbelievable. They kind of touch on some of the brood stuff, but they're very different. And then there's Magneto torturing a purifier to get the information they need. Something I see coming up a lot is emotional responses and duress. Logan makes a call to let Magneto do the torturing. I think one of the strengths of this book is the the emotional reaction, which is why that one sequence irks me so much. Kyle, you're somebody who has a great affection for the X-Men, but not a whole lot of stomach for torture. I feel they did manage to handle the torture sequences in a mostly tasteful manner, but once again, that interpretation of religion that we were discussing rears its head again in the form of Xavier's crucifixion. How did you feel about some of the torture sequences in this book? Oh, I was very unsettled. Like I've said, this whole book, while it's an incredible story, it just, everything about it leaves me incredibly unsettled. just from my relationship with the world and seeing the imagery of Charles being crucified and these figures in the light and all of these hallucinations that he's having as part of this torture, it just makes me feel really uncomfortable. And I think uncomfortable is one of the best ways to describe this book. You said something that absolutely, you know, there's that moment where somebody said, something that you've always been wanting to hear but you didn't know you wanted to hear it and yeah this book is uncomfortable because of my relationship with the world and i feel like that element is so well exemplified by iliana's unusual value in this story Jonah, something you've talked about a lot is that you love slice-of-life stories in hyper-fantastical situations. You love seeing mundanity juxtaposed against fantasy. And I feel like Ileana is the queen of dry asides in this story. She actually offers some amount of humor in these morose, terrible situations that are plagued by death and murder and unbridled hatred. Did Ileana's ability to retain who she is in the face of these horrors, connect with you in any meaningful way? Yes, it very much did, and it's for two different things. One being, in such a heavy story, whatever it is, you need some light and airiness to break up the tension so you're not having someone so on the edge of their seat. You have to give it in doses, and that's the role Ileana provided in this story of... She broke the tension and allowed a reader to get a chuckle, to be amused, to breathe for a second, to then get back into the gritty realness of everything. And I really do appreciate that. 
And I think that it being Ileana is important because we currently, at this point in Uncanny, don't know if Ileana is a mutant or not. We know that she went through some troubling stuff in basically hell with a creepy red demon, but we don't know if she's mutant or not, and Charles is still unable to identify that within her. So having her be quote-unquote the comic relief of this issue... I think it's pretty important because she's offering commentary about a very stressful situation. The second reason why I appreciate that is that one of the purposes of humor and one of the things I love about comedy is that ability to take something so negative and repurpose it into something else. A lot of people deal with very negative emotional issues and problems and consequences. It's a very common tactic to reclaim emotions and to help process what's going on by using humor. And that's something I always love and seeing it done well. There are, there are times and places for comedy, absolutely, and I think having the small moments with Ileana was a nice touch. I really agree. Dylan, there's a sequence in this that I don't know that Marvel would ever greenlight now, and it's when Stryker, upon seeing his wife give birth, decides to kill his own child and then his wife. That is truly the worst case scenario of the notions that are introduced in X-Men number one when they tell us that Beast came out with oversized feet and hands. It's kind of comical, but this idea that a father would murder his wife and child, it's just chilling. And it sort of redefines what the X-Men are fighting for. They're not just fighting for a place in society. They're fighting for permission to exist. Something no one should have to fight for. How does that fit into your understanding of the X-Men? To me, it kind of makes you realize more so that, not to sound like Lady Gaga, but that they are born this way. When it comes to mutants, or at least most of them, their mutations don't really take effect until puberty. And I think a lot of people think when they read the X-Men comics that in a sense they're not mutants until that happens, but they aren't. They're born that way. Like Nightcrawler is the prime example and used as the example in this book. He was born blue and fuzzy and with a tail. And I think this is this segment, yes, I don't think it would be in comics anymore, but this part was, at least for me, reminding me that they are born this way, that they might come out green and that they can't help it and that even when they're born, society is going to be against them and it might even be against their mother who might not even be a mutant because mutants don't necessarily only have mutant children or some have human parents like Franklin Richards and the Fantastic Four. Yeah, to me, this was just showing the fact that society is against mutants even when they're born. And society being against mutants is the reason that I I just, I don't even know. There's something about this story that gets in my head as I'm reading it, and I've been the victim of physical acts of violence for being gay, and I'm so transported back to those moments in my life where I was almost a victim of gay bashing, and I say almost a victim because I certainly stood up for myself and I was a victim of nothing, but I was certainly the recipient of physical hate, and I get so choked up and I get so wrapped up in this book that I always forget that the conclusion of this book is brought about when a human being fires a gun to save the mutes. A police officer takes Stryker's life to save Kitty, and it's a human being who saves Kitty, not from a human being, but from a mute, because Stryker begins having a response to the psychic mutant attack he's orchestrated through Xavier. 
It says everything I need it to say about not just this story, but the X-Men. And it's really funny that that was the phrase I put in my notes. I turned to my handy-dandy comic creators on X-Men, edited together by Tom DeFalco, and I found Claremont's quote on God Loves, Man Kills. Falco said to him, God Loves, Man Kills was your first and only X-Men graphic novel. Why didn't you do others? And Claremont replied, It was everything I wanted to say or should say about the X-Men for someone who's never read the book. I mean, the idea was to tell it all, to encapsulate the X-Men in one book. I think we succeeded with God Loves, Man Kills, and I never really wanted to do a sequel. That book says everything I ever wanted to say. We wanted to set the story outside of continuity, so it was vaguely within the time frame of the X-Men at that point in time, but also apart from it. The thought of Stryker showing up in five other books as a stock villain made my head explode. We wanted it to be as valid in 2006 as it was when it first appeared, and I think we succeeded. This leads me to two responses. Number one, I really agree with Claremont. I believe there's a couple of ways you could do a strong cutdown of the X-Men, and that's been really reinforced for me since starting this project. I believe you could use our supercut of Giant Size, as we discussed in our special edition episode. I believe you could use... X-Men 100 uh, through 103. I believe you could use the Dark Phoenix Saga. And if you need something to tell you about this sort of Days of Future Past, post-Burn era, this kind of second Cockrum, Paul Smith time period, this book tells you everything you needed to know about this point in the X-Men. Also, I need to comment. This series of interviews acknowledges Claremont's return to Uncanny X-Men in Uncanny X-Men 444, which, by the way, has one of the coolest Nightcrawler covers ever. The weird thing about that is that Uncanny run is a direct sequel to the 46 issues of Extreme X-Men. The 46 issues of Extreme X-Men includes a six-part arc called God Loves, Man Kills 2, which sees the return of Stryker in so many ways, invalidating tons of this material. But it ultimately led to the return of Stryker as a semi-regular villain, and then ultimately the return of Nimrod? And it all comes together in that weird House of X pulls from every facet of X-Men history. Guys, this is one of those books that just... It's why I love comics. It's why I love making comics. It's why I love discussing comics. This is why this medium has such power over me. And you can see its effects on TV makers like Joss Whedon or the filmmakers who have covered X-Men since. I wanted to give each one of you a chance to sort of say what God Loves, Man Kills either means to you or a big takeaway or how it's affected you. God Loves, Man Kills. It gives me an idea that comics really can show us a reflection of our world in a way that makes it feel real while dealing with fictional characters. And while it's scary, it at the same time gives me a little hope that there is still some goodness in the world. It's that goodness, that hope and that light that I feel like makes God Loves Man Kills worth it, powerful, and so capable of surviving the test of time. Dylan, what did you think? My ultimate thoughts on God Loves Man Kills is it was a dark story that really was the most lifelike story that could be told about the X-Men for all fans and even non-fans to maybe relate to. Yes, it had the awful part with Kitty and her wordings of certain things, but again, this was a more realistic story, and that I feel is 
more of a realistic reaction that someone would have. And for the entire story to be so dark and so slightly grim and make the reader feel like there's no hope for mutants. And then at the end to show that a human saved a mutant just kind of shows that maybe at this point in time in comics, Charles's dream of humans and mutants coexisting could be real. And that maybe it is a metaphor that for readers in the real world, that you could get along with someone that you might not exactly understand or relate to. That's the hope, you know what I mean? That we can find a way to keep making those connections in the face of this heaviness and this darkness. And, you know, I'm pretty sure this is supposed to be a funny podcast. Man, I picked such such a bummer topic today, Jonah. Jonah, what did this story mean to you? And what do you feel it's going to continue to mean to you? What I appreciated most was the not shying away from showing that there is power in people who have influence. And I know that sounds like a redundant statement, but I don't think people realize the power that a face of something has. I don't think people realize that the power of popularity has and how having the ability to spread a message for people who believe in you and believe what you do and believe that what you're doing is right and good, that's not always the truth. There's a lot to be seen underneath and there's a lot behind closed doors. And I really appreciate the not shying away from showing that evil and battles and villains that you do have to fight aren't always going to be the idea of being a supervillain. It's going, it can be someone who just has a powerful voice. And I don't think I'll ever stop appreciating the brevity and, dare I say, the balls on Chris Claremont for writing an issue so heavily handed like this. Hey everybody and welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise starting in the 1970s and make our way forward through the misadventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants. As always, I'm your host Nico and today I have an incredibly special guest with us. She is not only one of the foremost voices in the comic activism scene, making sure that everybody feels safe at comic cons, but she herself is a creator, a cosplayer, and more. Jay Justice, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It is incredible to have you here and it's not just incredible to get to to work with you and have been on panels for you and with you and it's been such a blast but it's been incredible to get to know you as a person and just how much you bring to the table you don't just have a wealth of knowledge you have a wealth of knowledge that you educate with and that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about so it can be so easy in especially in the comic book medium to get wrapped up in the fictionalism of, to get so distracted by how much we love our fictional characters that we forget about the real world implications of the stories we're talking about Jay as somebody who has an extensive background what is probably the, the most important thing fans could know about real-to-life discrimination in the comic industry? Well, I mean, on top of being an editor and consultant, I'm a huge comic book fan myself. So I've enjoyed all of this media even before I knew what problematic things were. But even as a young kid reading these amazing, like just prolific, fa fantastic, profound Chris Claremont X-Men comic books, I could still feel, hey, this is wrong. This makes me feel uncomfortable as a black person. And I think that what they have a problem with is the idea of using discrimination and prejudice and oppression as a backdrop for a story and having a fictionalized marginalized 
fictionalized character, while at the same time demeaning those who experience these discriminations and prejudices in real life. And to make a comparison between someone being, you know, a Negro, a person of color, a Black person being discriminated against and being a mutant and implying that somehow the mutant suffering is more. I mean, I, I strongly discourage the oppression Olympics in real life. I think that as people who are suffering from discrimination, no matter what it's from, it could be xenophobia or homophobia. It's really not okay to say to someone, oh, this was happening to your people. You care about it more when in reality, we're all struggling together and we need to be more united than anything else. And I think a big problem we have in fictional media is that we're encouraged to have sympathy and empathy for fictionalized minorities, while at the same time, we don't care about people who are suffering in the real world, and we don't even allow them to use their voices in our fiction to honestly make it better. I cannot even tell you how much I resonate with everything you're saying. And there's a reason I wanted to come to you. You weren't just one of the people who helped me understand how to be a better socially conscious creator, but you helped me understand how to look at work that I love that has aged somewhat oily. One of the things that is the hardest for me is that as much as I love God Loves Man Kills, Kitty Pride saying the N-word in a conversation to Stevie Hunter is beyond reproach. There's absolutely no person, a member of that creative team who was of color at that time. And this was a bunch of white people saying that they felt it was a comfortable term to use to illustrate a point of which they had no right to touch on. As a young black woman, did th was this an exclusionary moment for you in comics? Oh, it absolutely was. I immediately felt taken out of the place I was in. I mean, firstly, the book starts off with you watching someone be lynched. And even out of context, you're like, okay, these kids are being hunted because they're black. Like, that's immediately what I thought. And I was like, wow, this is this X-Men story is really going there. It's not just the Kitty Pryde is using the N-word, which of course, in itself is reprehensible because there's not just POC, there are no black people involved in this project at all. And I don't care if you're a non-black POC, that is not your word to use, period. But you have Kitty Pryde screaming at a black woman who has undoubtedly experienced the same kind of prejudice that Kitty is going through. And this is a moment where if it had been handled by somebody with lived experience to truly understand it could have been written in a way that showed empathy on behalf of everyone in that moment because they've all I mean look at Kitty is Jewish obviously the character is black Peter is Russian Russian people have also experienced xenophobia because of everything that happened politically between the people who run our countries so we could have all had a moment here where they were like I know what you're going through but what you just said to me is not okay and that's how I would have written it if you can have Kitty be angry and you can have Kitty use a racial slur and you can but you can have that moment examined and that really would have made a totally different tone to the story and I'm not trying to make it a very special episode but it clearly already is one and that was the point of it hey you know we love very special episodes on this show Lizzie. <laughs> Exactly. That's our thing. Now, I think the worst question in the world that I could ask right now would be, what is the one thing you feel the world should know as a black woman in comics? Because you are not the only black woman in comics. Oh, absolutely not. There is no such thing as one member of a group representing everyone in that group. So I guess I'm trying to ask, what do you feel as a woman vital in comics and a black woman vital in comics, comics needs to know right now? What's the most important lesson that we need to shut up and listen to from women like yourself and members of minority classes like yourself. I think the most important thing for everyone to know is that you're not alone. And that can be taken a number of different ways. If you're a marginalized person who likes comic books, guess what? You're not alone. You're not a unicorn. There's not just one of you. You're not the last. You are part of a huge fandom that is diverse as the world around you. And you shouldn't feel like your voice has no importance. Your voice is super important. And you have the ability to change lives and to change the media you're consuming just by taking part in it. And if you're someone who has privilege, if you're white and you're cis and you're able-bodied and you're straight, 
guess what? You're not the only one either. And you shouldn't feel like, yeah, you shouldn't feel like all the work has to cater to you. And that if someone changes your superhero, oh my God, they took away the, oh, they took away the flash. He's brown now. Like, guess what? It's okay. It's going to be okay. It's not just for you. It's for everybody. Oh, beautiful brown fast boy. Oh, needed so bad. Needed so bad. (laughs) He's coming. Oh, Kid Flash is coming. I need a minute. I'm so excited. <laughs> Everybody's going to be able to check out Jonah cosplaying Kid Flash this Halloween. It's going to be Canonically amazing. gay Kid Flash. Oh, so <laughs> in. Now, Jay, I've had so much fun talking about these fictional characters, but more important than that, you're not just a cosplayer. You're an editor making important work in progressive fiction. And where would everybody be able to find you to find out more about the amazing work you do and the amazing work you're part of? Uh, well, you can find me on the interwebs at that J Justice. That's T H A T J A Y J U S T I C E. I'm on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Discord, Twitch. I'm working more on getting more stuff on Patreon. I appreciate the support I've gotten so far. I just really want to just take everything that I'm working on and give it to you guys as many comments as I possibly can. But it's hard out here, so you have to do the best you can with the time you got. Absolutely, Jay. And we can't wait to have you back for more amazing X's for podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Guys, it has been amazing having everybody on to talk about such a powerful work that we clearly all had an incredible reaction to. Nobody here has shrugged this experience off, and I'm so glad to have had you all here and to be able to talk about this. Kyle, until we have you next on our amazing show, where can everybody find Yes. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. How about you, Dylan? Everybody can find me on Facebook at my X-Men Facebook group that is called House of X. And you can also find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everyone find you? Find me online at Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like Now and Again, which I do with my childhood best friend, Chris Podcast, where we talk about pop music in the form of the Now That's What I Call Music series. Or you can find my theme music on shows like Too Fast, Too Forever. Don't forget to check out HTML, which I do with my amazing husband, Kevo, where we talk about different media franchises we find fascinating hint that is most of them. You can also find me on Instagram, being mostly shirtless and mostly thoughty at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until we return to talk about... Uh, wait, no, wait, the next one. The next one involves severe body torture, bloodletting, sadomasochism. Okay, so things aren't going to pick up for the X-Men any fucking time soon, okay? But we're going to come back and everyone's going to have a good time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>